welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back to the show, first-time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Always glad that you found Counterpunch, that you're hopefully finding all of the content interesting, illuminating, provocative. We do try to provide those things. You know, we've been around for more than 25 years, printing the magazine, providing content on the website, and now we're moving into a new stage, launching the subscription section. I think I jumped the gun talking about it in the last episode. That will be available very, very shortly. Be on the lookout for that because that's going to be a way that you can support Counterpunch. All of the content that was available in the print magazine with the columnists and everything, that's all going to be available in the subscription section, plus a whole lot more, including additional podcasts from me, maybe others, who knows, also uh, additional content that you wouldn't have found in the magazine. So a lot of great stuff to come. Also, do check out uh, the t-shirts that we have for sale there. That's a way that you can support Counterpunch Radio. Keep the lights on. Keep this podcast going. Um, So... All of that out of the way, I want to turn to my guest today. Jackie Fielder is with me. Do you know Jackie? If you don't, you should, because Jackie is one of the most exciting candidates that we should be following in this election cycle. The website, JackieForSenate.com. That's F-O-R, ForSenate.com. She's a candidate in California for the State Senate out of the 11th District. She is a lecturer at San Francisco State University, co-founder of the San Francisco Public Bank Coalition, and she's on Twitter at Jackie Fielder underscore. Jackie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for all the great work you're doing. And that's really where I want to start with you. So introduce yourself to us. Who are you? Why are you doing this campaign? What are the what are the issues and the the, the reasons and the experiences that brought you to this place? Yeah, well, uh, my name is Jackie. I am an educator and organizer, also a proud Latina and indigenous woman. I've been here in San Francisco running for District 11, which encompasses all of San Francisco, Daly City, Coma, and parts of South San Francisco. I was born and raised in Southern California to um, uh, a family of mainly working class people working, you know, uh, mailmen, public sector jobs. My mother is a secretary and she raised me for most of my life as a single mom. I'm uh, the proud product of public schools, and I also really got my start in organizing around the No Decode Access Pipeline movement. Um, Basically, I saw my own relatives face down the barrel of guns in 2016 at Standing Rock, and I have since been working on a public bank to basically divest from all of the Wall Street banks that invest in oil pipelines and private prisons and reinvest in things that we actually need locally, like affordable housing and small businesses and public infrastructure, renewable energy, and so on. So uh, I'm basically running a very grassroots campaign, uh, no corporate money, no money from real estate developers or charter school advocates, uh, big tech companies, which is a big deal here in, in San Francisco. And I'm running because we just can't wait until, uh, you know, the right people come along. We need fundamental changes to our economy and political system now. 
want to know a little bit more about your experience with the uh, Dakota Access uh, Movement and Standing Rock, because um, you talk about being Indigenous and your background, of course, intersection uh, between, you know, the different sides of your family and the different experiences that you've had. And I want to just ask how that being your sort of introduction to activism as it was, how that informed your politics and what some of the experiences that you had there, how that carried forward into shaping your political vision. Absolutely. So, I mean, I had been looking at police violence since the 2014 uh, resurgence of Black Lives Matter then in the wake of the death of Michael Brown. And from that point on, I pivoted from, you know, public policy is kind of just like my major to really organizing and organizing uh, for the bigger structural changes that we actually need. And by this, I mean dismantling our criminal justice system as we know it, uh, defunding the police, which back then was not very popular. But, you know, seeing my own relatives, people who looked like me, face down the barrel of guns, have dogs set on them, uh, be subject to water cannons in sub-freezing temperatures, that really personalized police violence for me. And so I I basically... Um, wanted to follow the money and I wanted to understand why such an economic and political system would unleash this kind of violence. And so basically I, I traced the, the money back from prisons and policing and fossil fuel industry to the Wall Street banks and decided that actually in San Francisco, if we are about our progressive values, then that means that we need to put our money where our mouth is. We can't entrust our $12 billion budget to these Wall Street banks and then say that we are in support of human rights and economic justice and social justice. And so for the past year years, I've been working on building up a local coalition here, uh, the San Francisco Public Bank Coalition, to push for ultimately a municipal public bank, uh, a public bank that is owned by our local government that serves perhaps the region of the San Francisco Bay Area, and that is ultimately beholden to the shareholders, which are the people. Um, last year, we passed AB 857, which is a public bank bill that basically defines and legalizes public banks. And now we're working on a state-level bank to hopefully create a, a, a puzzle piece in the larger infrastructure project of having a system of public banks. For somebody who got their start in uh, environmental activism, I think it's probably appropriate for me to now ask you about the apocalyptic end of the world that you're living through in California at this moment. Uh, the wildfires are raging uh, unabated. And uh, of course, this raises many different questions, including what a climate change future or a climate change present really means and what that looks like. It also raises questions about land and about how we use the land. And I guess that's where I want to uh, focus this question for you. Um, since you talked about sort of your experience and how you've kind of um, grown into understanding not only the indigenous background and the indigenous experience, but the issue of decolonization. Can you tell me about what decolonization means with respect to the environment and the land? Yeah, I mean, basically it means repairing our own relationships, individual and collective, to the land. Before there were skyscrapers and obviously, you know, millions and millions of uh, people on this 
continent that we now know as the United States, uh, there were millions of indigenous people that lived in um, synchronicity with the environment around them, with the creatures around them. And here in California, we are currently facing more than 600 wildfires right now as we are recording this podcast. And some of that is due in part to climate change. But one study found that actually a lot of the um, increasing frequency and intensity of fires can be attributed to directly to the, the settler colonization of California. And specifically, I mean, the outlawing or even uh, ignoring of indigenous practices of stewarding the land. For example, um, it was common for at least Northern California tribes to practice small controlled burns of, of you know, um, forest floor and, and flammable material like grass and, and brushes and sometimes trees. And that would prevent the larger, more intense fires that we're seeing now. But, and you know, so we have some of those practices at the state level, but it is not in, in, in kind of uh, as much partnership as it could be with indigenous tribes. Um, there are other practices. I mean, for one, I mean, we, we talk about, you know, um, the system of dams that has threatened the salmon, the wild salmon here in Northern California. And that system has completely changed um, the, the food sources and just whole lifestyle of California tribes, you know, essentially turning them from food paradises into food deserts. And that is what, that is the legacy of settler colonialism in California. But it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, there, I, I look to New Zealand as one potential example, and they're not perfect. They still have racism and, and plenty of examples of trampling on indigenous rights. But they, they have a lot more, I would say, deference to the Maori people, the indigenous people there, as far as uh, sacred sites and how to um, practice land management in the way that does not necessarily center humans, uh, but also, you know, works in in partnership with the land as as equals. And that's what I think decolonizing uh, land management would potentially look like. And that's why I'm calling for any, any, any Green New Deal for California to recognize the rights of indigenous people to return land back to indigenous hands and and elevate indigenous voices when it comes to state level plans for mitigating wildfires. And we see this in so many different aspects of uh, the environmental crises in California. This is certainly true with wildfires, but it's also true with water management. It's also true with agricultural practices, with a whole bunch of things that really make California the economic engine that it is, isn't it? Absolutely. 100%. Uh, speaking of issues that are facing California that are certainly at the top of any political agenda, housing really figures centrally, I think, in everybody's concerns these days. Certainly, it was already the case in the Bay Area, as it is in New York City and several other places around the country. But 
coronavirus, the COVID pandemic has really brought this all into stark relief. So before we get into solutions and some of the actors behind the uh, the problems, can you just give us a little bit of a sense of what it's like in San Francisco? I think some people may have some perceptions or maybe misconceptions of what's going on in San Francisco on the streets and so forth, but you live there. Tell us about it. Yeah. I mean, for one, before the coronavirus pandemic, we had record levels of of homelessness, um, way more than 9,000 homeless individuals. It's hard to get an exact count on our streets, um, including, you know, more than 1,400 San Francisco Unified students, like actual students, 1,400 of them were homeless before this pandemic. And who knows what that number is like now? Um, I imagine that there will be an explosion because our state governor and our legislature, despite having a two-thirds Democratic supermajority, can't get it together to stand up to the real estate industries and lobbyists to advocate for canceling rent and canceling mortgages. Um, Here in San Francisco, there are, I imagine, before the pandemic, there were thousands of vacancies across California, hundreds of vacancies in, in San Francisco. And I imagine that that has exploded because we're now seeing that more people can work from home. A lot of people are returning to to live with family uh, to save money or just because they simply can't afford it anymore. Um, People are renegotiating for, for lower rent. But at the same time, like I said, there are so many thousands of San Franciscans that are at risk of eviction right now because they've lost their jobs. They haven't been able to make rent. Um, Thankfully, locally, we have an eviction moratorium uh, that will pretty much turn any renter debt into consumer debt, which means that tenants can still be taken to court for not paying back rent. Um, That's the strongest protection we have at the local level, but it's really the state level that has the power to cancel rent and cancel mortgages. And that's what we really need. I'm not holding my breath for that to happen. And so uh, supporting groups like the the San Francisco Tenants Union, Housing Rights Committee of San Francisco, Eviction Defense Collaborative, um, who do the thankless and I imagine exhausting work of taking calls from tenants and, and people who are just really confused about the patchwork that our state level officials have left us. Talk to me a little bit about some of the forces uh, that are kind of behind the scenes here. What is the real estate lobby up to right now? What are they trying to hammer through in these crisis times? And what are tenants and other associations, including yourself and the people that you work with, what are you guys doing to head them off? Yeah. So, I mean, for one, we have some some exciting and really necessary measures at the local level being proposed. So in San Francisco, uh, Supervisor Dean Preston, who is a Democratic Socialist, former tenants' rights lawyer, uh, longtime tenants' rights advocate, um, has put onto the November ballot a real estate transfer tax that will tax uh, pretty much any sale of a home more than $10 million dollars. And we have plenty of those in San Francisco. You know, we have 75 billionaires, might I add. Uh, across the state, we have 175 billionaires who are only getting richer off of this pandemic. And that 
fund will be able to provide relief for renters and small landlords and also provide funding for social housing, you know, affordable housing. Um, I would like to expand it to the state level. There's been no such measure proposed to grow the state revenue uh, funnels at all. And at the same time, um, you know, obviously we're, we're in between a rock and a hard place because we, we need to cancel rent, but it's also, you know, a, a matter of making sure that the smaller landlords who are, you know, they rent out their, one of their homes uh, or one of their rooms, they don't get swallowed up by Wall Street and get foreclosed on and so on. And so we need to essentially shift the burden onto the banks. That's not being proposed at the state level. What is on the table is this kind of like renter debt scheme that is not at all going to be accessible to most California renters because they won't know it exists. But in any case, it essentially converts renter debt uh, into the hands of the state government and gives landlords tax credits uh, in exchange for, you know, being being having their tenant being able to uh, be beholden to the state. So a so, landlord bailout. Yeah, somewhat. It's it's not cash and it's not required. It's all voluntary. And what that means for some is basically a landlord will be able to say, will be able to force tenants who are not going to read, you know, several dozen pages of an agreement and say, here, sign this. And then they sign it and they just waive their right to this voluntary agreement to have their renter debt uh, be put into the hands of the state. And then they would they would have way more time to pay it back. So it's a very weak measure and it's better than nothing. And that's why I hope it passes. Um, as I understand it, it's being held right now. And the legislature is in talks with the governor about what exactly can be done. But it is not it is not a great time right now for millions of renters across California. Now, your opponent uh, is a progressive, a progressive Democrat, I, I, I guess, well known in, in you know, local politics there. Um, but when we use the words progressive Democrat, I think we should keep in mind that there are plenty of people who style themselves as progressive Democrats and still do the bidding of the real estate lobbies and others. Those of us in New York know that all too well with de Blasio. We've seen that over and over again in countless other cities as well. So talk to me a little bit about your opponent and about the political machine in San Francisco. Francisco that is beholden to the real estate lobby. Absolutely. And from day one of my campaign, I swore off contributions from law enforcement associations of any kind, uh, rideshare companies, real estate lobby, real estate advocates, uh, charter school advocates, billionaires, tech companies, you name it. I only have three kind of organizational contributors right now. The, the rest are humans, and there's more than 3,000 of them. I'm, I'm very honored to have a grassroots campaign. But those are the California Teachers Association, United Educators of San Francisco, and my tribe that I belong to in North Dakota. Um, my opponent, on the other hand, has long been uh, an ally and champion of the real estate lobby, um, of charter schools, of tech companies, and uh, actually, a lot of tech companies are behind the push 
for more luxury and, you know, market rate housing, which is not affordable to the everyday person. You know, our median income in San Francisco is so high. It's like $120,000 because we have a class of people, really like a lot of my classmates from Stanford who, who go into tech or finance. And at the same time, we have a whole other class of people, really a lot of black and brown communities and working class communities that are still struggling to just hold on. And so he has, back in 2018, I co-managed this campaign against our local San Francisco Police Officers Association. They wanted to write a dangerous use of force policy regarding tasers. And for a long time, San Francisco has not actually had any tasers. And we at the DSA uh, chapter in San Francisco, we partnered with the ACLU of Northern California to basically build a coalition across the city to handily defeat this measure despite being outspent five to one. My opponent was on the side of the San Francisco Republican Party and the San Francisco Police Officers Association in supporting that measure. Uh, and as well, he opposed one uh, of the biggest, kind of uh, boldest, most progressive funding mechanisms to prevent homelessness and house homeless people in the city. In November of 2018, we were proposing a small tax on the wealthiest corporations like Twitter and Square and Salesforce. And uh, this funding would bring in about $300 million a year to provide for permanent housing and supportive services for homeless people. He sided with the biggest corporations and opposed that tax. It passed with 61% of the vote, but it really needed 67% to be able to be secured. And so all of that funding is now stuck in the courts. And if he had supported it, it may not be. And we really need that money right now because homelessness is just exploding here in San Francisco, especially with shelters being closed because they don't want to spread coronavirus and with more people losing their homes. And so he is directly, he has to take a modicum of responsibility for what we are seeing today. And as someone who's experienced housing insecurity, someone who has friends and students who have experienced housing insecurity and even homelessness, um, that issue is really personal for me. And there's been a number of, of other, you know, kind of uh, really horrible decisions he has made throughout his 15-year political career, not just at the state Senate, but locally as a county supervisor in San Francisco, you know, siding with the police union, siding with big corporations, Airbnb, to deregulate our housing policies, to allow for luxury development, to encourage and even champion measures to uh, increase the size of our law enforcement without any added requirements for reforms, uh, and, and championing really the criminalization of homelessness, the criminalization of poverty, and expanding our response, our law enforcement department, and, and essentially feeding our, our already bloated prison system. Well, that's about what I would expect from a progressive who works uh, in the Pelosi machine. Yeah, I mean, he's backed by a lot of the the bigger names that have come out of the city. But at the same time, you know, he has supported, out of all of the measures and candidates that he has supported, 
these past four years as state senator, and we have a lot of elections in San Francisco, uh, he has been on the losing side, you know, the other side of constituents, 83% of the time. It's really, I think that entire establishment is really losing its um, its its power here locally. I mean, you you can't walk around the district and say that we are doing right by our constituents and that this is a, a district that is a sanctuary for all. That's not the case. And that won't be the case until we get representation that is not beholden to the real estate lobby, to police unions, to charter schools, to tech companies, to all these special interests. And that's why I am so proud to, to have raised almost as much as my opponent in the, the time period from February to June. Um, and with, with, you know, with everyday people sending cuts of their unemployment checks or educators sending us cuts of their already meager salaries, essential workers. And, and these are, you know, these are people like you and me, and they, they have every reason to not believe in the system. And I've been there. I, I know that feeling, but I am just so honored that they would entrust us with their, with their finite resources. And, and I intend to deliver on that in November. Lots more to discuss with Jackie Fielder on the other side of the break. Do stick around, listen to the music. We'll talk more with Jackie. I'll ask her why we should listen to a kid. Who cares what a kid has to say? And a whole lot more. Stick around. We'll be right back. scientist or even on your very own street maybe even be a rap star time switcher you can change old pictures make a better situation for your mother and your big mom make dollars on the ride and the house get it right use your power getting everything you did wrong then you say look at where i'm at now straight poverty death is in my backyard don't feel us get 50 g's a pack while my teacher don't really give a damn about a black child and grown folks say tell the truth and act foul say no to drugs hiding all that crack vibes and talk all about peace and loving god but then why are we at war killing people in iraq now And now it's brighter up in her world It makes her stronger now She's gotta carry on and be a very good mama This is life, let it unfurl And she's doing it, mother of the earth now Found a blessing in the struggle through her first child Kept going, kept growing, kept flowing Kept striving, kept knowing God would make a way somehow Live your life, girl, show them how it's done now I believe in you, so keep it moving till the sun's down Never let them hold you back from anything you want now Life is what a right, so find them treasures that are unfound Keep on, keep going, watch on, move on, keep going. 
And we're back. Jackie, I want to start off the second half of our conversation by asking a question I'm sure you've gotten many times before, but why should we listen to you? You're just a kid. What do you know? You're just, you're so young. You have no experience. You don't know anything about anything. Why should we listen? <laughs> yeah, I get that plenty. And it's, it's not uncommon. It's not something that is, is new. I've been facing that as long as I've been advocating against police officers associations and, you know, big banks, you know, talking to big banks in Europe about their funding of the Dakota Access Pipeline. But that's that's worked to our advantage this whole time. They consistently underestimate the power of of people. And, you know, I talk to voters every day um, that I mean, that rarely comes up. Uh, and I think that when you have so much experience um, as my opponent certainly does. But if you can't deliver for your constituents, if you can't advocate for them without being beholden to these private interests and the real estate lobby, I mean, what good is the experience? As we're seeing from so many legislators who uh, are insurgent candidates, have not held public office before, yet they continue to deliver big pieces of legislation. Uh, for their constituents, I mean, they we see in New York, Senator Julia Salazar was just one Democratic Socialist who got elected, but she got elected with a number of other progressive-minded legislators, and they were just the handful of them were able to push the legislature a little bit further left and a little bit more accountable to residents. And now this year in New York City. We see them elect four or five democratic socialists. And that's just two years after Senator Julia Salazar got elected. And so I'm hoping that the same can be done here in California. Once we get one, the rest will, will come. But at the same time, you know, this is, this is a long shot and always has been. Um, but if, if, you know, if the voters decide <laughs> that, they actually want someone who's beholden to everyday people and not to the the usual political establishment, then then the will of the voters will be done and it will be a mandate. What's a democratic socialist? Um, a democratic socialist, I'd say, believes in the power of workers to um, own the means of production, to also transition to that system and a democratic way as much as possible. Um, I think as far as the bread and butter issues, it means the ability, the material, con getting the material conditions for everyone to be able to have the opportunity to actualize their own lives, to live lives of dignity and full of love. There are material conditions that have allowed me to get to where I am. You know, I studied at Stanford, which is a huge privilege, but I also was able to be educated in in public schools and be on the kind of quote unquote gifted track. Um, we, in, a, in in essence, shouldn't have these kinds of tracks. You know, we shouldn't have a system where only if you can afford a housing or healthcare should you be entitled to it. That's not the system that I want to live in, and it's certainly not the most efficient or effective or humane system, as we're seeing now at a time when millions of unemployed Americans uh, are now facing a pandemic 
on a level we haven't seen in 100 years, they're without insurance. Tell me how that system works for society, works for us as individuals. We need a society that says, even if you can't afford it, we will provide you quality healthcare, education, housing, all of the things that you need to actually just exist. It should not cost money uh, just to simply exist and live a life that is dictated by uh, hard, grueling working hours. Uh, people are entitled to leisure. That's something that I really liked about uh, the, the Democratic Socialists of America kind of um, ethos is that they, yes, we want bread, but we also want roses. We want time with loved ones. We want time for friends. We want time for leisure. And that's not something that we would have gotten, you know, the eight hour work week without a strong working class movement uh, that put the power back into the hands of working people and not um, the capitalist ideologue class that seeks to extract wealth by simply investing here and there and everywhere. And what would you say is the difference between the kinds of programs and uh, platform that democratic socialists put forward and say the kind that uh, progressive Democrats or liberals might put forward? Yeah, when we, I mean, the biggest difference is I think a lot of progressive Democrats and neoliberals, and I would place my opponent in the neoliberal category, is that they talk a lot about access, like access to housing, access to healthcare. Well, as democratic socialists, we're talking about free housing and free healthcare and free education and, and not just free as in like low quality. I mean, like quality, like, you know, the kind that that is extremely competitive with private schools, the kind that is extremely competitive with the best healthcare that money could buy. And we wouldn't even need the option of these private options if we had adequately funded our systems. And as far as healthcare, the way that we achieve national universal healthcare is by having one state do it. Really excited to see New York and see if they're able to pull it off before California, especially given now that they have, you know, at least five democratic socialists and a number of progressive legislators. But I, I'm interested to see if, if one state can pull it off and then we expand it to the national level. One of the things about being a socialist is always focusing on workers and focusing on the ways in which capital exploits and oppresses workers. And California is in many ways sort of a, a, a laboratory for various ways in which uh, capital is exploiting workers. And one of the primary ones, the one that I'm thinking of right now, is uh, what's going on with Uber and Lyft. Uh, there's been quite a lot in terms of legislation passed that's been uh well, let's say directly in opposition to their business models. And now we're seeing some very interesting developments there. So I'll let you explain. Uh, tell us about what Uber and Lyft are up to and why it matters as far as not just the gig economy, but what it illustrates about capital and how capital operates. Absolutely. So, I mean, to, to give you just an idea of this particular race and, and where that fits in right now, both my opponent and I agree that AB5, which was the big piece of legislation uh, passed last year to classify workers that work for, you know, these larger corporations like 
Uber and Lyft and, and the gig companies are classified correctly as employees, we both agree that that's necessary. Um, however, you know, we're different in that I have never accepted a dime from rideshare companies. I have never supported them. I don't ever intend to. And my opponent, on the other hand, has in the past praised them for the, like, I don't know, the, the efficiency that they uh, provided to our transportation systems here in San Francisco. You know, that was a number of years ago, but it wasn't forever ago. It was like 2017 that he said that. And he also accepts money from like Ford and and Lyft and executives at Uber. And so that's that's me and him. Now, to the issue of what's happening right now with them, basically, Uber and Lyft were now are now being required by the courts to classify their employees correctly as employees and not independent contractors. And instead of, you know, abiding by the court's ruling, they are throwing a temper tantrum and deciding, well, Uber hasn't yet, I believe, but Lyft has shut down services, as I understand it, and Uber has threatened to follow um, because they they simply just don't want to, <laughs> they don't want to do that. And, and, you know, if their business model was essentially not paying drivers the wages that they deserved and are entitled to legally then what was their whole thing uh and at the same time this is happening when there's a ballot measure on the state ballot for november um that that lyft and uber and uh instacart and other companies threw 110 million dollars at to basically roll back that law ab5 and so now they're they're throwing you know temper tantrums and texting all of their customers i got a text last week last friday um basically saying like you know register to vote uh don't forget to support prop 22 and so we are no on 22 <laughs> just to make that clear and and you know they like to play these tech companies like to play apolitical until the government tries to enforce labor laws and ensure that the workers are receiving the the value that they are producing themselves to the company. And that's clearly not happening for, for Lyft and Uber. And that's why they are now uh, basically putting hundreds of thousands of Californian drivers um throwing them under the bus and making sure that they can't earn a living during a pandemic. One of the interesting things about this issue to me is that, you know, and, and certainly from a socialist perspective, you know, it really illustrates one uh, critical aspect of capital and also a critical aspect of collective action, because this is what's called a capital strike. This is a strike from capital, not from labor. They are quite literally threatening to take their capital and leave and uh, if they're forced to abide by the laws. So uh, at a broad level, it really does illustrate, I think, something fundamental about capitalism and about how capital works. And I think San Francisco is maybe one of the best examples. Absolutely. And, you know, like I said uh, earlier about the, the tax on the wealthiest corporations here, my opponent uh, was against that and was on the side of Square and 
Twitter and, you know, Jack Dorsey and a number of other big companies who were like, you know, this is harmful for this and this reason. But really, it's not about it's not about anything about effectiveness. It's about it's inherently political in that they do not want their business model to be disrupted by by taxation. And they don't want to live in a society where the wealthiest have to contribute their fair share so that everyone else can actually have a fair shot at living a decent life. Well, and they and they also don't want to let California be the model for the rest of the country. Yeah, and and you know, people don't just come here for the weather. They come here because we are actually on the whole quite friendly to these corporations. We give them tax breaks. There was an infamous Twitter tax break here locally in San Francisco. Uh and, you know, at the state level, we have a flat corporate tax structure that obviously, you know, I think it's like a 7% tax rate for any corporations. And also on the ballot in this November is Prop 13 reform. Uh, in a nutshell, we have not been taxing uh, properties at their uh, levels beyond like 1972 or something. And right now we're reforming that law to be able to tax commercial real estate, uh, commercial, you know, buildings at, at rates that they should be taxed right now. So, for example, like Disney and uh, those same wealthy corporations, they're not paying the the taxes that they actually uh would owe normally. They're paying them as if they were back in the 1970s. And as a result, our public schools are severely underfunded. And so we need to pass Prop 15 this November, if you live in California, uh, vote yes on it. And it's it's just another step to make sure that the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share here. And it's also a way of addressing the housing crisis, too, because it's not just a matter of raising funds. You're also removing one of the impediments for mobility, one of the motivators for older people not to move out of their properties and not to vacate homes for younger families and so forth. I know that because my parents are in exactly that situation in Southern California. And when I fully came to understand what what Prop 13 meant and what it actually is, I said, I can't believe that even exists. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, your parents will not be affected by Prop 15 specifically, but bigger corporations like Disney and so on will. And for here in San Francisco, that would mean like 700 million more dollars coming to our schools. And so this is, but, you know, to be clear, this is just to get us to the level where we needed to be a long time ago. This will just enable public schools to do the bare minimum. And, you know, with distance learning, everything is, I can attest to this as an educator, everything is taking longer. It's actually more work to prepare for schools. And so Prop 15 needs to pass in November, but we also need to go beyond it. Last couple questions for you. I want to talk a little bit about some of the really marginalized uh, uh, workers and laborers that often get ignored, even in discussions of labor. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking of agricultural workers who are right now in many ways facing sort of several crises or they're at the intersection of several crises. They're out in the middle of a pandemic working, many of them living in, in, in subpar housing conditions, oftentimes overcrowded, oftentimes insufficient. Um, and then of course, 
also the wildfires, which are making, uh, well, making the work very dangerous, certainly dangerous for anybody with a respiratory condition, but really dangerous for anybody. So I want to talk a little bit about sort of the intersection of these uh, phenomenon or maybe <laughs> oppressions or whatever we want to call them, and uh, the impact on agricultural workers who, although they're often ignored and left out of the conversation, there's, there's a lot of them in California, and it's a very, very, very serious crisis. Absolutely. And, and farm workers, day laborers are often the most forgotten in our safety nets. I mean, they are not receiving, so many of them are not receiving unemployment checks because a lot of them are undocumented. Uh, not all of them, but, but many of them. And our federal government, obviously with Republicans in power, are definitely not keen to support them. And, um, you know, basically Californians are left to fill the void. Um, and basically we're, we're not, uh, stepping up to the task. I mean, the governor had this $100 million fund for undocumented people who were left behind by the CARES Act. And that was a great first step, but really it's, it was just a bandaid on, on everything else. And, and we know that there are farm workers still harvesting our food in the Central Valley as these fires are raging. More than 600 wildfires are raging across the state. And as you said, it exacerbates respiratory conditions. They're living in crowded housing. And, and this also contributes to the spread of coronavirus, which we know disproportionately impacts uh, black and brown communities. And we, because they are not, you know, voting populations, they're really not some, they're really not communities that many legislators consider when, you know, deciding our response to coronavirus or recession or wildfires. And that is a, a, that is a really big disappointment and completely unacceptable when so much of our, of our nation has been built by immigrants and undocumented people. Um, and I'm, I'm saying this as also a descendant of indigenous peoples. Um, and we need to, expand our safety nets to make sure that everyone is entitled to relief and that can weather the storm. Final question for you. Um, what would you say to people who may be listening, who are uh, considering getting involved politically, uh, maybe even those who would be in, I guess, your age bracket or even younger than you are uh, in their 20s or maybe even their teens? What would you say to them, uh, building on your own experiences and where you've gotten today, what would you say to them in terms of what their responsibilities are moving forward 2020 and beyond? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for a long time as an organizer, I've struggled with the idea that all these problems are so overwhelming. And I found comfort in the kind of advice or phrase that it's not your job to finish the work, but it's also not okay for you to just leave it. And at the same time, I'm not encouraging people to burn out. Everyone needs a break, especially right now in pandemic, like if you can just get out of bed take a shower, prep a meal for yourself. That is a big win for some people. And I've, I've certainly had those days in my past, but I know that, and I've felt that the cure to a lot of our, I mean, 
uh, ennui and just isolation is action. And if you have the ability, you know, social media is great. If you have the ability to, you know, help us or another campaign in your area, um, hit the doors with literature, not necessarily door knocking because we're in a pandemic, but hit the doors with literature or even phone banking and talking to voters that every single call counts. And so many insurgent campaigns can attest to that because they are winning by very slim margins of like a hundred votes. Uh, and that means that every single call, every single, uh, pamphlet that that volunteers distributed, that that is winning. And, you know, it's it's really dark times right now, but I feel like across the country we are seeing insurgent campaigns, grassroots funded campaigns, uh, shatter the, the 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 traditional thinking about what's possible in politics. And if we really want to defund the police, we want a Green New Deal. If we want universal health care, expanded tenant protections, protections and real sanctuary for undocumented people, if we want to reinvest in black and brown communities, if we want to uplift the working class, we need to fight for seats at the table that are uncompromised by special interests. And so um, to plug into mine, you can you can plug in at Jackie for Senate.com, F-O-R. Or you can look at any other campaigns that are uh, jump-starting in your area. Well, you beat me to it. JackieForSenate.com is the website, at JackieFielder underscore on Twitter. Uh, I couldn't uh, I couldn't recommend Jackie's campaign more highly. For those of you who are in California, certainly for those of you who are in that district, you know what you need to do. Those of you who can volunteer, who can support, you should be doing that as well. And if it's not something that you can do with uh, Jackie's campaign, then as she said, maybe something locally or getting involved. Jackie, uh, I think the work you've been doing is very, very impressive. I'm very happy to hear how well you're doing. And I wish you all the best uh, luck in this campaign and moving forward. Thank you so much. 40 Thank days to go until ballots drop. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. Listeners, thank you as always for supporting Counterpunch and for listening. We'll chat again next week.